To conclude his distinguished career, legendary Australian herbalist Dennis Stewart will present his final course, a professional extension in herbal medicine. Commencing on the 23rd of November 2019, this 12-day intensive course will be held over a period of 12 months on the New South Wales Central Coast. This will be your last opportunity to participate in detailed learning with Dennis, covering relevant, effective herbal prescriptions to treat an expansive range of conditions. For more information and to register, please go to lakespa.com.au. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Dr. David Perlmutter, who's a board-certified neurologist and five-time New York Times best-selling author. He serves on the board of directors and is a fellow of the American College of Nutrition. He received his medical degree from the University of Miami School of Medicine, where he was awarded the Leonard G. Roundtree Research Award. He serves as a member of the editorial board for the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease and is published extensively in peer-reviewed scientific journals, including Archives of Neurology, Neurosurgery and the Journal of Applied Nutrition. There is so much to Dr. David Perlmutter's bio, I'll leave you to read it later. So welcome to FX Medicine, David, how are you? Well, I am delighted to be with you and uh, miss everybody down in Australia, so this is a great opportunity to reconnect. We had a lot of fun when you were here for the Biocidical Symposium. David, now, we're sitting on the precipice of an avalanche of issues which affect the brain, including Alzheimer's, but also things like stroke from metabolic disease. What went wrong with our lifestyles and diets, and, and when did this happen? Andrew, I think it is... Uh the answer to the question is what went wrong is what we call an evolutionary mismatch. In other words, our genome has been refined and cultivated uh, in response to an environment that has been relatively static for tens of thousands of years. Suddenly, we have challenged our genome with signaling uh, that is manifesting as ill health. I mean, uh, according to The Lancet in 2019, we now know that one in five deaths in the world is a result of unhealthy diet. That's just one part of our lifestyle consideration, the foods that we eat, it's, albeit a, bi a big player. But our genome wants us to survive, wants us to be healthy and uh, continue our ability to reproduce and, and carry on. Uh, but it evolved at a time when our world was different. Mm -hmm. So I think that uh, to answer your question quite specifically, I think the fundamental mechanism here that, re that explains why the most common cause of death on our planet are the chronic degenerative, i.e. lifestyle diseases, as a manifestation of the evolutionary mismatch between environment and genome. And then Inflammation flows from that, and it's becoming accepted as a major driver of chronic disease. But we need this vital process as well. So when is that tipping point when it turns into a driver than a, rather than a protector? 
Another good question, and I think that, you, know, you bring up a very good point. I mean, everybody is pointing fingers saying uh, inflammation is bad and insulin high levels is bad. And, you know, I think that we have learned that basically the U-shaped curve or the inverted U-shaped curve, either way, uh, is really applicable to any of these metrics. Right. Certainly, without inflammation, we would probably perish within a couple of days. It's a powerful mechanism within our bodies to deal with infection, to deal with uh, wound healing, uh, to deal with uh, limiting the viability of organisms that may have gained uh, ingress uh, into our bodies. So it's a very powerful and incredibly conserved from an evolutionary perspective mechanism. Uh, the problem is when we get outside of the, of the curve, when we have uh, inflammation at either way too high a level at one time or chronically at a less high level, you know, over a longer period of time. Uh, same thing could be said about blood sugar or cortisol or many of the other metrics that we deal with. We know, for example, that sleep is a great thing. Sleep is good for our brains. It's good for decision-making. Uh, having not enough sleep is associated with a variety of uh, issues, including cancer, diabetes, and Alzheimer's and coronary heart disease. But interestingly enough, too much sleep is also associated mm. with those very problems. Uh, that said, it's, I, I hate to use this term, uh, knowing how I feel about sugar, but it is about looking at what is the sweet spot. What's that ideal Goldilocks zone in any of these uh, matrices uh, that we can really try to approach and, and make our goals? And beyond that, understanding that the goals in terms of what's ideal, will vary person to person. And then, of course, you know, you've got so many dietary issues causing inflammation. You mentioned sugar. You've also spoken previously about the issues with wheat. Um, but then you've got things like psychological stress, and we know that we're way more stressed than even 10, 15 years ago. How do you prioritise um, diet, lifestyle, and stress, emotional issues? in furthering inflammation or chronic inflammation? Well, Andrew, let me take a step back, if I may, in terms of this sort of broadened approach to understanding inflammation that you've just yeah. uh, alluded to or opened the door to. Yeah. And yes, I'm certain that you've uh, interviewed people and you've spoken yourself over the years about the role of chronic inflammation in whatever that chronic disease may be, whether it's coronary artery disease, type 2 diabetes, etc. That's well established. And I think what is just beginning to be established is the role of chronic inflammation in mood disorders and even in our decision-making ability, that our ability to make good decisions is threatened by the very inflammation that we've been talking about for years and years. So, that raises inflammation, I think, to a higher level because when there is inflammation increased in the body for, from whatever cause, be it dietary, lack of sleep, uh, lack of exercise, uh, excess body fat, you name it, it threatens decision-making, which often manifests itself, the poor decision-making, as opening the door to yet further lifestyle choices that make that situation worse. Mm. We know that uh, when we disconnect from the prefrontal cortex part of the brain and lock into our impulsivity center, the amygdala, and this disconnection is brought about 
by inflammation, when this happens, then we make poor food choices, which does what? It fans the flames of inflammation, and the whole process continues on what we call a feed-forward cycle. It's a terrible pun, but I think it's apropos. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, when we, but, you know, the, what we want to do then in looking forward uh, into the future is look at what are the various types of off-ramps that we can offer people to break that spell, to bring the adults back into the room, to manifest better decision-making that will ultimately then help reduce inflammation, which will foster even better decision-making moving forward. Okay, well, so, I mean, there's so many areas we can go here. You talk about off-ramps, and what's going through my mind is not just poor decisions with regards to food. You know, we know the sugar hit causes another sugar hit. Even things like domestic violence, even things that we see in our cultures, our communities, where emotion or or anger, aggression, is driven by poor decisions and drives more poor decisions. Is this where we're going? Yes, and I want to break this down a little bit for your listeners because this prefrontal cortex, the area of the brain, uh, the cortex of the brain behind the forehead, is involved in a lot of things, uh, but I think for the purposes of our time together today, let's just focus on a couple. First, this is an area that allows more thoughtful decision-making, uh, decision-making that looks at, for example, future consequences of the actions I engage today. It looks at the uh, future consequences in terms of other people, how they may respond to things I choose to do. It looks at right versus wrong, good versus bad. <clears throat> and it also is the area of our brains that is involved in empathy, being able to uh, share in another person's opinion or viewpoint, cognitive empathy, for example. The other area that we should focus on is a more primitive part of the brain called the amygdala, and that is, as you mentioned, uh, the part of the brain that uh, is much more impulsive, mm. uh, makes sudden rash decisions, allows people to experience what's called us-versus-them mentality, fear and tribalism, narcissism. These are all mediated by this uh, amygdala area. And what we recognize now is that, under the best of circumstances, the prefrontal cortex exercises what we call top-down control over the amygdala, basically reining it in, pretty much acting as the adult in the room. So we depend to a dramatic degree on the connection then between the prefrontal cortex to the amygdala, being able to remain connected to it and govern our behavior from a more sophisticated perspective. When this connection is threatened, then we default to that area of the brain that is more fearful, that is more aggressive, as you were talking about, more impulsive, poor decision-making. So that connection is key. And what we've been talking about lately is what we call disconnection syndrome. That is the reduction in the communication between this prefrontal cortex, call it the adult in the room, mm. and the more impulsive child in the room, the amygdala. We need the adult to exercise this top-down control. And guess what? One of the major factors that threatens the connection is inflammation. So what I'm saying then is 
if inflammation, for example, relates to diet, and you and I know that it does, and if the modern Western diet is so darn pro-inflammatory, which it is, and this modern Western diet is becoming the global norm pro-inflammatory, then across the globe, we are locking, we are, well, people are becoming locked into behaving uh, from the amygdala in a more impulsive, uh, anger-based, aggressive uh, globe, global view, in part due to the pro-inflammatory nature of the very foods that they are now uh, receiving. So you're right that these changes are happening. Uh, we're seeing it. We're seeing this incredible isolationism, tribalism, fear, and aggression you know, virtually permeate the entire planet. And based upon this model that I've just described, it may well be that this westernization of the global diet through the process of inflammation may in part be responsible for exactly what you described, this aggression and fear uh, that is so pervasive. You know, I've read the, of the research of Felice Jacker in Australia looking at mood with even basic dietary changes, which decries just how poor some people's diets are. We know of Julia Rucklidge's work from Massey University um, in New Zealand uh, looking at supplementation, basic supplementation, changing the mood of of ADHD kids and things like that. So, you know, replacing certain nutrients in their diet. How simple is it to change certain things when people are in that grind? They're in the sugar hit. They're already obese. They've got the hunger drivers. And, and there's a second part to this question. How can we measure it? Well, let me get the, uh, let me get to the second part of the question first, and, and that is how can we measure it? And, uh, you know, the most sophisticated thing that we can do is, of course, do functional MRI scans on people. It's obviously not uh, approachable and, uh, to scale. No. Uh, but, again, uh, I think that there is a direct correlation between imaging of brain connectivity and C-reactive protein, with higher levels of CRP uh, being associated with decreased uh, imaging of, uh, of brain connectivity. So you can see disconnection syndrome on a brain scan, and you can correlate that with C-reactive protein. I would say that our old-school markers of inflammation, I mean, real old-school if you wanted, like fibrinogen, von Willebrand's factor, but more recent things like interleukin-6 and trimetoclosis factor alpha and, of course, C-reactive protein, can be surrogate markers for what is going on. We know that inflammation is at play here. Uh, we know that as such, uh, I mean, you, you bring up uh, Professor Jaka and, and her, her work at the Food and Mood Center is really standing at the forefront of, uh, of really trying to raise the awareness that you bet food matters. It matters directly in terms of micro and macronutrients. It matters somewhat indirectly through the lens of how food affects our gut bacteria and their role, for example, in the creation of so-called neurotransmitters. And uh, as mentioned, through the process of inflammation, also very uh, important, not only in terms of the connection we talked about a while ago between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala and the mm -hmm. top-down control, mm -hmm. but also through another interesting pathway, and this is the uh, kynurenic acid pathway, whereby inflammation uh, inhibits, if you will, the transformation of tryptophan into serotonin, favoring some more neurotoxic uh, metabolites. So inflammation turns out to be 
operant in, at many levels uh, ultimately becomes a feed-forward uh, process whereby inflammation is related to mood disorders, increasing cortisol levels. What does cortisol do? Changes the array, the diversity of gut bacteria, and also increases gut permeability, which then, of course, amplifies inflammation yet oh, again. Wow. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> there are many surrogate markers here that can give you a sense as to what's going on. Not only the markers of inflammation, but certainly uh, markers of bowel inflammation and specifically bowel permeability all relate back to these fundamental mechanisms. Now, I'm going to ask you to uh, remind me what question number one was, because we jumped on number two. <laughs> when we're in that, that melting pot, we're already there in the grind of these very powerful drivers of, of hunger, of, of poor food choices. How do you get out? How do you teach people to make a, a better choice? And it's really a very good question. I would say at this stage of my career, that's a question I might, I might get three or four times a day. <laughs> it's what people struggle with. There's no question. They struggle with that first step. And our goal is to offer up any way we can to get a crack in the door, to regain even a modicum of better decision-making. In other words, better connection to the prefrontal cortex. So it might mean that when a patient visits a healthcare practitioner to lose weight, that's the goal, that at week one, the discussion has absolutely nothing to do with diet. There's no diet given, which will raise that patient's eyebrows, no question. But at week one, we only work on decision-making ability. And that might mean in that first week that we're going to really give it our best shot this week to improve the quality and quantity of your sleep. Now, what in the world does that have to do with my food consumption and my and dietary choices and weight loss? Uh, might be, of course, you know, a, a bit of a almost confrontation with the patient. But what we're trying to do here is begin the process of first rebuilding the brain through neuroplasticity to allow better decision making that will then serve us moving forward and will build on itself moving forward to really fully realize not just the dietary changes, but changes across multiple lifestyle platforms. We're actually uh, building this out right now with um, the Institute for Functional Medicine, their physician wellness program, that this should be job one. Mm. Because, you know, you take a step back, you realize that Today, we don't suffer from a lack of great information. I mean, there's so many good books and programs and podcasts. There's tons of good stuff out there. But I would submit that it's worthless. All of that information, even my books for you or anyone, are going to be worthless until you implement the information. So what we need to do is bridge information over to action. Then we're talking about something. You know... <clears throat> We as healthcare providers do whatever we can to learn as much as we possibly can. We go to all the conferences and read the journals. <clears throat> then in the clinical setting, we're meeting with patients and giving them the benefit of our research, of our study, and say, you know, this is really what makes sense for you. Here's the best diet, 15 minutes of exercise, an hour of exercise, whatever it may be for this individual but we recognize that where the problem really situation breaks down is after that, when 
50 to 80% of the recommendations made by healthcare providers to their clients or patients are disregarded. So, you know, you can oftentimes talk to patients, uh, you know, on and on, and it's great, but if they don't implement the information, it is completely useless. And, you know, we as healthcare providers have tended to point fingers at these individuals saying, gosh, they must have a problem. They, I've given them this such great information that I learned at an IFM conference, wherever, and I can't believe that they're not going to do what I said. There's got to be something wrong with that person. What's their problem? We've got to stop that blame game because we now have come to understand that these individuals with typically high levels of inflammation, you know, the type 2 diabetics, the overweight, etc., really virtually everybody in our modern world, elevated inflammation, uh, they have had their decision-making apparatus in their brains hijacked mm. away from the prefrontal cortex, locking them into a situation where their decision-making is impulsive. They don't have the hardware to make better decisions. It's absolutely time to recognize that and stop the blame game because I'll tell you that these people go home and look at themselves in the mirror and ask themselves why they can't follow through with what Dr. So-and-so just told them, and what do they do? They blame themselves. And this is pervasive, well beyond the doctor-patient relationship. Everybody wants to get in better shape, maybe lose weight, gain weight, whatever it may be, and yet a blame, we blame ourselves constantly for not being able to follow through despite this incredible amount of information that we have. So, okay, so stopping that guilt, you know, particularly, as you say, in a world of instant gratification, we're, you know, bombarded by marketing messages from, you know, teenagers playing exciting games with their friends. So there's almost this quasi social interaction right through to the guilt that women are placed under and place themselves under. Um, with re- from the the media that's that's posted all over them about how they should look. There's so many things in our whole society that we really have gone wrong with our society. Um, how do we stop guilt? How, is it a, purely a, a meditatory type action that we need to, or an affirmatory type? Um, well, thing all that those we things are important, but I, for us, job one is to call it out. Right. Job one is to reveal to everyone the depth at which our brains are being manipulated. I mean, I think people have read what goes on in terms of the manipulation of our attention online, away from what we want to be online doing, uh, the constant clickbait and pop-up ads. I think people are aware of that, but not recognizing how enticing the Internet experience is. You know, here in America... Uh, the average American adult spends north of six hours a day in front of one screen or another. Mm-hmm. You know, that's in a lifetime, that's 22 years spent in front of a screen. Two things are happening. Number one, your attention is being mined. It's being hacked and it's being manipulated. I'm not, this is a conspiracy theory. We know, you know, you can learn this stuff easily enough online as to how aggressive companies are using artificial intelligence to manipulate your online experience, cultivating YouTube videos that happen to interestingly be very similar to the last YouTube video that you might have watched. Why? 
because your attention online has value. But what we understand as far as our online experience, as an example, because I think that's what you're alluding to, mm. that, yes, there's an incredible amount of time that we spend online. A, that's bad for the brain, does change its wiring. But B, when you're doing one thing, you're not doing something else. Six hours a day in front of a screen, you're not likely to have enough time then to get enough exercise, to shop for good food that you would then prepare in your kitchen, to interact with people in real time uh, to, you know, do all the things that are important. Spend a little time in nature, definitely, as you uh, spoke about. Mm -hmm. Meditation, mandatory on a daily basis. All of these things are really important to cultivate a better relationship with this prefrontal cortex, allowing it to do what it can do, and that is give you a better level of control over your day-to-day lifestyle decisions and allow you to be a more empathetic individual for other people, for your future self, and even for the planet upon which we live. So there's nothing wrong with the internet in terms of using it uh, with um, intention. I mean, that, you know, how do I write books? I write books because I have an unlimited access to information uh, via the internet. It, it is, for me, it's, it's just breathtaking. On the other hand, we know what goes on and how our attention can be manipulated, and that has values, value for others, but not for, so much for us when it's manipulated. Christian Lang, a historian, wrote uh, in 1921 that technology is a useful servant, but a dangerous master. So uh, that was in 1921, right? Yeah. Uh, it's a very, very powerful message for each and every one of us today. What about transgenerational brain changes, though? Now we're seeing, you know, the stress of the mother and the father being born by the children. Have you then got a hardwired thing that is irreparable? Uh, I think that those two things are, they, they are not mutually, uh, they don't endow each other, hardwired and irreparable. Uh-huh. Uh, things can be hardwired, but they can be, they can be changed. That is the beauty of neuroplasticity that we can take advantage of. Things are definitely hardwired, but you know what? We, you know that you forget things as you get older in terms of language and skills, so those things can atrophy if we don't continue to pay attention to them. And at the same time, we can strengthen pathways to uh, activities and, and parts of our brain that allow us to see the world in a better way. Uh, and, you know, to be clear, uh, this transgenerational brain change, really genomic change, mm. uh, is, at least if we're to believe the laboratory research, uh, is multi-generational. It's not just the, the children of, but it's the grandchildren of and even the great-grandchildren of, at least with respect to these inherited alterations and methylation pathways uh, that we see in the rodent model. And you mentioned sugar way back. So, you know, we're evolved from hunter-gatherers who lived off a plant-based diet until we finally caught up with that prize of the meat and we, we gorged on that. But why, therefore, are our brains seemingly hardwired for the sugar hit? Why have we got that sweet spot? It's a very good question, and I think uh, it, it, it's so fortunate that we have this desire for sweet. That may surprise you to hear me say that. I'm, it's so fortunate that we have something called insulin resistance. 
If it weren't for insulin resistance, we would not have survived. When we induce insulin resistance by having, for example, high levels of fructose in our diets, mm. meaning lots of fruit uh, at a time when fruit is abundant during the year, it stimulates insulin resistance. It has a role to play in lipogenesis, allowing us to make and store body fat that serves as a hedge against times of caloric scarcity. So this is some very interesting uh, ge genetics uh, here. Uh, we know that the um, gene modifications that really may have brought about uh, the sweet tooth have to do with changes in our metabolism as it relates to fructose uh, through its mediation of uric acid. It turns out that uric acid, as a, as a downstream product of fructose metabolism, is really at the heart of really all five components of metabolic syndrome. And again, it has to be looked at through the lens of providing us an evolutionary advantage. If not, then we wouldn't have the genes that uh, allow uh, this pathway to happen, what are called alterations in uricase. So we've got down-regulation of uricase that probably happened around 8 million years ago and allowed our great ape ancestors to survive when there were some clim uh, climatic changes that reduced the number of or the availability of fruit for our ancestors. Uh, primarily in those days, I guess it was figs. And that uh, three uh, different uh, mutation site modification of the uricase enzyme allowed us to increase our uric acid and as such uh, increase the likelihood that we could develop something that allowed us to survive and that is insulin resistance. So uh, how incredible that you and I are now having a conversation where we are, we are saying thank you to insulin resistance yeah. because without it, we probably wouldn't be here. Insulin resistance, though, in a, a hunter-gatherer landscape, I can you know, certainly appreciate that uric acid will help our survival because eventually we'll have a feast after the famine. But the problem is that we never have the famine now, not in our Western society. Um, you are 100% right, Andrew, and that gets back to our original question today. And that was, what is it that lies at the cornerstone of the illness that is pervasive around the world? And it is this evolutionary mismatch. You're right. It served us well in times of feast and famine. During feast, we would be able to uh, gorge on foods uh, and have access, for example, to fructose, uh, increasing our resistance to insulin, allowing us to store uh, make and store body fat, allowed us to survive during famine. That's why those genes uh, were selected for. But today, you are correct. We don't need to be clearly storing uh, excess body fat, but yet we are uh, in light of the fact that we have this downregulation of uricase and uh, this increased uric acid that is then um, really playing such a functional role in uh, increasing our ability to make body fat. So what sort of, um, you know, I'm going to say the word supplements, what sort of supplements can practitioners use in the naturopathic armamentarium that are effective at, at changing these or helping people to change these decisions, helping to blunt that next craving for sugar or fat or whatever? Well, you know, I, I think that <clears throat> let's look at the word supplement, first of all. <clears throat> what are you supplementing to? You're supplementing to the diet. So I think 
the, the step one should be the dietary changes prior to really even thinking about supplementation. Yep. So right I, I think that we have to look at the diet and recognize that some of our uh, per, some of our positions that we may have taken over the years should be looked at now through the lens of a more personalized approach as opposed to making global recommendations. But this is what we do know uh, from a global perspective, and that is that uh, simple carbohydrates and sugars are really uh, a, a, a something to be avoided across all dietary platforms, in my opinion. I think that dietary fat is valuable, uh, and, but I think the quality and certainly the type of fat yeah. that we are consuming is really fundamental. Absolutely. I think the type of protein that we are consuming and the type of more complex carbohydrates we are consuming, very important. I think eating along the lines where we recognize that one important leg of the stool is how we nurture our microbiome, uh, I think has taken center stage these days as well. So I think there are a lot of factors to consider. Now, in terms of supplementation, that's a very, very good question. Um, I think we can infer from laboratory studies what people may need, but more importantly, uh, look at more functional testing as opposed to just laboratory levels of vitamin D or B6, B12, folate, whatever. Yeah. I think looking at uh, more uniqueness as it relates to those nutrients uh, I think is very valuable. For example, what is the status of an individual's vitamin D receptor? Does he or she carry certain polymorphisms as they relate to uh, MTHFR, as an example? Might an individual be more susceptible through uh, PPR uh, alpha polymorphisms to less tolerance of a higher fat diet, as an example? So I think we have the tools now to be far more specific about supplemental recommendations, I would say that, um, you know, there are probably a core that I think are valuable for most people and, uh, and for myself, and that includes, for example, vitamin D3. Uh, I think that, you know, we're not probably going to be in a situation where we're able to make enough vitamin D from cholesterol via sunshine uh, in our modern lives. I think that's, that's a given. It's so I think this is a patch on an evolutionary mismatch. Hmm. So uh, I, I think looking at vitamin D, titrating its levels, but also looking at VDR uh, polymorphisms to consider uh, what might the downstream effects be or not be, more importantly, from activation or compromised activation of that receptor. Uh, I think looking at MTHFR and looking at functional assessments uh, methylmalonic acid, for example, as it relates to B12, looking at some functional uh, metrics, uh, very helpful uh, in terms of the B vitamin group in general. Uh, so I think it, you have to be pretty uh, adept at utilizing laboratory evaluation to really cultivate the, um, you know, the best chance of doing right by a patient in terms of her or his needs. Right. So, you know, I mentioned Julia Rutledge's very basic intervention with a multivitamin, and then you have mentioned gut. You've mentioned even, you know, the gut microbes. So very often practitioners use um, probiotics there. Where do you sort of start? Do you tend to start at the gut level, which is the, you know, seat of all nutrition, or, or do you tend to intervene at the brain level to help people to, you know, maybe... Um, 
helping their neuroplasticity? Well, that's a good question. I, I think that generally we start at the gut. Right. And we then try to leverage this gut-brain connection. <clears throat> but I think it's, it's really important to start at the gut. And, you know, who knew? Yeah. <laughs> who knew that uh, food and the gut are important for health? Gee whiz, that's brand new information, isn't it? Uh, so I think from there, then we are going to create the scenario that's then good for the brain. We're going to reduce inflammation. We're going to improve uh, what might be increased um, gut permeability and secondarily blood-brain barrier permeability. So I think the, that the brain is going to be a huge beneficiary of of enhancing gut health, both in terms of mechanistically, but also in terms of metabolically, in terms of the what the gut bacteria are producing. Now, uh, having said that, I mean, there's plenty of lifestyle things that we can do that are specifically more cerebrocentric. Uh, for example, uh, physical exercise is a powerful way of enhancing the production of brain-derived neurotrophic factor, obviously really uh, important for brain health, lower levels of BDNF, published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, strongly correlate with the risk for dementia. Uh, we know that BDNF enhances neurogenesis and also neuroplasticity, by the way. So even getting back to our original model of wanting to reconnect to the prefrontal cortex, that can be facilitated by higher levels of BDNF, hence the inclusion of exercise in the program. So, um, you know, beyond that, we know that uh, DHA is a, is a fundamental a brain uh, building block. We're learning these days that the type of fish oil we may consume uh, is uh, important in that now we're seeing some very highly sophisticated extraction methods from cod liver oil that allow higher levels of what are called specialized pro-resolving mm. mediators, mm. resolvins and protectins, which we know have a dramatic role to play in reducing inflammation. <laughs> so we've kind of come full circle. I think that yeah. the use of, of high-quality omega-3s is, uh, is really very fundamental as it relates to brain health and overall reduction of inflammation. We know that DHA is a COX-2 inhibitor, uh, and as such, you know, we have pharmaceutical COX-2 inhibitors, and this is nature's COX-2 inhibitor that helps also control inflammation. Again, Getting back to our original moments together, there is an upside to inflammation. We need a, a good, robust inflammatory response when we are challenged by, for example, an invading microbe. But then we have to resolve that inflammatory cascade. And we have within our bodies these mechanisms, homeostatic mechanisms, much as insulin kicks in when blood sugar goes up, pro-resolving mediators help to reduce this inflammation once it kicks up to bring it down to a manageable level. So I think those are the key players that are involved in both gut and brain. And really, uh, you know, we say those in the same breath because of their profound, profound bidirectional relationship. I was really interested when I was reading some of the research on these um, SPMs um, and uh, there was a real key to the level of Maurice's versus the Rosolvans that, you know, you had to get the right ratios in effect? Yes, and I think, you know, the issue here is that we are just, uh, we're just beginning to get some really good understanding uh, of all of these players and recognizing that, indeed, uh, you know, we talk about 
uh, resolvins being derived from DHA, um, and uh, uh, these these molecules being derived from EPA. Yeah. <clears throat> We're now actually seeing similar uh, pro-resolving meters being derived from docosapentaenoic acid, or DPA, yeah. which has been sort of the forgotten child. And rec- it has been, and, and recognizing the value uh, of DPA moving forward. So I think it's an, uh, it's an evolving story. And I think that, um, you know, we're going to learn a lot more about it. I mean, right now, we're sort of early um, in, in the game in even being able to measure uh, these products, both in humans and certainly in uh, as they make up constituents of uh, these omega-3 fatty acids. So so that technology is really relatively new. So, you know, moving forward, being able to measure them uh, in the omega-3s that we consume and also in humans, I think is going to open the door for some correlative uh, studies and interventional studies too. As a neurologist, do you ever employ another forgotten nutrient, phosphatidylserine? Well, I think that there's going to be... Uh, we used uh, phosphatidylserine years ago. Yeah. Uh, it was kind of one of our uh, membrane um, kind of uh, go-to um, supplements for uh, as it relates to you know, building a more uh, functional cell membrane. Uh, but I will say that in moving forward, what we're, where phosphatidylserine is getting a lot of play is um, as it relates to serine in general as a delivery mechanism for serine. Right. And uh, why that is, why that becomes interesting is we're, we're starting to see some really compelling data that certain types of marine algae are producing a neurotoxin uh, called BMAA. And there are now uh, several studies ongoing whereby serine is being used uh, to help offset the, uh, the damaging effects of uh, BMAA, which is now looked upon as possibly playing a role in things like amyotrophic lateral sclerosis and, uh, and even Alzheimer's disease. So um, we know that, um, you know, there, again, as mentioned, there are uh, several studies underway looking at this. And, uh, you know, how this then plays out moving forward, we don't know. We don't know what, um, uh, you know, how this BMAA is acting in terms of uh, what's called the N-methyl-D-aspartate receptor, how that leads to what is called excitotoxicity, ultimately uh, mitochondrial failure, which then plays a role in uh, apoptosis, so pre-programmed cell death. So um, this is a, an emerging field as well. Uh, we are looking at uh, seeing how this uh, exposure, at least in vitro, of BMAA is involved, for example, in protein misfolding, a uh, central player in Parkinson's uh, and Alzheimer's as well. So we're looking at that, and I think that we're probably going to see uh, a bigger role for serine and uh, likely phosphatidylserine as well as a delivery tool um, uh, in this realm. Okay, so we've gone down back into the cell from the from the whole organism, but really important um, biochemical processes. Things like you mentioned apoptosis. What about autophagy and you know the anabolism or anabolic activity of the cell? How do we balance that? How do we get that right? Well, this is a this is a central question being asked today. Now that we understand uh, that, you know, there's clearly a, a switch that occurs between 
building muscle like uh, building tissues like fat and muscle, and uh, and tearing them down. And there's a it reminds me of a song by a group called the Birds. Uh, and <laughs> to everything there is season. Uh, it's the song is turn turn turn. The time to build yes. up and the time to break down. Yeah. And I think that um, we have to value breaking down. Uh, everybody's into building up, building muscle, building brain cells, building uh, fat, not so much, but, uh, you know, the idea of just continuing to grow is threatening through the lens of cancer, that's for sure, uh, building and, and uh, allowing these pathways to be very active, for example, in, uh, in children, in, in utero, uh, giving things uh, or uh, having uh, children receive uh, breast milk, for example, that stimulates this activity, the growth activity, I think, is really very powerful, and, but the balance is important. When we consider that we, in general, think about limiting the activation of insulin-like growth factor 1, IGF-1, through uh, caloric restriction, uh, fasting, etc., cetera, uh, because of its role in regulating something called mTOR, the um, mechanistic target of rap- rapamycin, that really is this IGF-1 and mTOR pathway really is a, the switch mm. that regulates to a significant degree, growth versus uh, autophagy or breaking down auto cell phagy eat, uh, the, the process by which our cells are able to break down components like misfolded proteins, damaged fats, damaged proteins, even damaged nu- uh, nuclear material, that we're, uh, whereby we're able to break that down and recycle that material. Uh, this is enhanced during times of stress, uh, certainly enhanced during times of caloric scarcity, um, allowing our bodies to basically catabolize uh, in order to facilitate our survival. But at the same time, it is a powerful mechanism uh, whereby we're able to get rid of things that are cells that are damaged, uh, and even DNA, for example, that's that damaged. And as we alluded to earlier in our BMAA discussion, misfolded proteins. Mm. So I think it's good to challenge your body in such a way as to enhance this autophagy process uh, and to do it not infrequently. Now, that could be done most efficiently. The medicine for it is called fasting. Mm. And uh, that is, you know, how much should a person fast? Uh, Some indications indicate that it's a minimum of 36 hours at least until autophagy kicks in, uh, but probably even longer. We don't have a lot of good laboratory metrics to look at this. Uh, yes, there are some leukocyte immunofluorescent techniques that are available to researchers, but you know, that's not something that we can necessarily make available in the clinic. Mm. So we don't really have a good marker for how well you're enhancing autophagy. Yes, you can look at IGF-1, but that's, uh, it's highly variable. We know the half-life of IGF-1 is about six hours, so you know, that's going to decline pretty dramatically early on in the fast. Yeah. Uh, other things that are looked at are uh, things like metformin, which uh, stimulates AMP kinase and helps to protect or reduce the stimulation of mTOR. Uh, very big in the anti-aging world, I will say. I, I serve on a an anti-aging research committee, and I am surprised that it looked like about 80% of the People at the conference table are taking metformin, and they're not diabetic. So, wow. uh, how compelling is it? I don't, I don't know. I mean, 
uh, I'm all for do no harm. So yeah. uh, while the, the biochemistry is interesting, uh, I think you can accomplish a heck of a lot uh, with with fasting, and that's available to everybody. And yeah, you know what? There's uh, nothing needed for that. And Well, I'm not going to say it's available to everybody. I w- I'm not recommending that everybody fast, that's for sure. Now, obviously, you've published Grain Brain previously. You've got a new book, which is called Brainwash. I get that we've been speaking about some of these things today, about better choices. Is this what Brainwash will teach us? Yes, Brainwash, uh, again, focuses on this model that we uh, describe between uh, decision-making based upon the prefrontal cortex versus uh, the amygdala. The value of the connection between the two, whereby the prefrontal cortex exercises top-down control, our decisions from the amygdala being impulsive, narcissistic, fear-based versus composed decision-making, future-looking decision-making, valuing uh, right and wrong decision-making coming from the more advanced, if you will, prefrontal cortex. So that's, you know, that's the the chemistry of the book, if you will. That's, uh, you know, the model that we build on. And then look at all of the you know, all the lifestyle factors that are involved uh, in, in how we can help culture, cultivate our, our relationship to the prefrontal cortex and enhance its connection to the amygdala, which is so threatened by so much of what you and I have talked about today. That's not uh, in stone. We can absolutely regenerate that pathway and strengthen through neuroplasticity that pathway and bring the adult back into the room, make better decisions for ourselves, that's what it's all about. Again, you know, we, uh, we mentioned this earlier. We don't suffer from a lack of information. We suffer from an inability to implement this great information that you've been giving out for years. It's great information, but it's useless to people till they decide that it's important and they're mm-hmm. going to act on it. Now we recognize that that ability to act on the good information is what has been so degraded and virtually hacked by so much of our modern society. You know what? Like, I've learned so much in my time of things like these acute interventions, let's say with anger or, or uh, PTSD, where somebody, um, if they're triggered by an anger response and if they have the presence of mind, even simple things like splashing water on their face can help bring them out of that anger. The other thing, obviously, you know, you we've, all, we've all learned things like counting to 10. We've all learned things like don't send that email till tomorrow once you've read it. You know, all of these actions in the now. But until somebody, you know, reads your book, Brainwash, and brings the adult back into the room by some dietary choices and some lifestyle changes... We're, they're really only actioning or they're really um, still responding in, into, in that now. They're not being present. That's right. And how interesting it is that meditation, for example, which is totally focused on the here and now, mm. not what happened yesterday, mm. not what I'm planning to do this afternoon. Meditation, which is focused on the present, is our, one of our best tools to allowing us to plan for the future. I mean, it, it seems a little bit contradictory, but it's true. And I, I always love talking about that. But, um, yeah, there are a lot of lifestyle choices that, uh, that we talk about in the book. I, I was actually uh, on, uh, in Australia on your Today Show uh, 
just about a week ago. And right. So very, very nice that uh, you know that Australia is so dialed in, and and this book just came out uh, a month ago is now being published in 16 countries around the world. My hope is that those who read it uh, will realize that they have a chance at regaining control. Uh, you know, but the, truthfully, I think the book is for those who are probably not likely to read it. Yeah, well, that's true. But what I'd, I'd urge all of our practitioners is to get a, a hold of that book, to read it and have then help implement it with the patients that they see. Um, you know, perhaps showing, the, you know, just enlightening them to one page or one paragraph and to go and see yeah. change can be made. Oh, that's for sure. And, you know, we, we covered a lot of, a lot of uh, information today and I... I don't want to, um, I don't want your listeners to think that there's not a place, because I remember we're talking about supplementation, there's not a place for supplementation. There sure is. I mean, if, if we had an ideal diet, uh, then we would we consider need. supplements to be what they are, that <laughs> yeah. is supplements. But, you know, even as it relates to this whole idea we were, this discussion that we were having uh, with respect to autophagy, I mean, there are plenty of well-described supplements, whether it's ashwagandha, uh, turmeric, caffeine, uh, EGCG that we get from drinking green tea, uh, ginger, I3C, melatonin, quercetin, resveratrol. These things are all helping us activate this, this whole autophagy, cleaning up, uh, cleaning up the body, cleaning up the brain uh, circuitry. So I think there's a role for those. But again, you know, I think primarily uh, it's either eating the right foods or even choosing to fast. It's that low level of stress, that hormesis, that really has incredibly powerful effects you know, uh, across multiple systems in the body that I think we need to take more advantage of. Dr. David Perlmutter, I, every time I speak with you, I learn so much. Certainly some lessons from me. Oh, my God, me. thank you. <laughs> uh, I can't thank you enough for joining us on FX Medicine today and teaching us about what's in your new book, Brainwash. Great. Well, listen, Andrew, thank you for having me today. It was a great discussion. Thanks. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. If you're a regular visitor to the FX Medicine website, you would have seen many of our great infographics. These are all now available for use in your clinic. You can download them for free. And the high-resolution versions are available for purchase as A3 or A2 posters or as a digital file. Simply click on the button beneath your favourite infographics at fxmedicine.com.au.